Hi, sports movie lovers, and thank you for igniting your 96th dose of Square the Movies podcast action. We go back into the past and review films with athletics in them, and we spoil, we spoil, we spoil. I'm the mid-40s huckster who doesn't really care for pro football's pesky rules, Ryan Ellis. And here's the guy who might like the pig in a poke if he hadn't sworn off eating pig many years ago, Chris the Bullet Gregorio. <laughs> I like that. There are several things in that intro that were true and untrue at the same time. And thank you, Ryan. I want you to know that before I got here, I did pay a street urchin to run away with the only <laughs> microphone we have, so we might have to forfeit the recording shortly. I am curious. When you say... <laughs> Obviously, I'm not aware of what your intro is going to be before we start doing this. I never are. No. So, ignite your 96th dose of the podcast. Are you suggesting that people freebase this podcast? Is that, is that Get it? those lighters. <laughs> your bent spoon and your lighter and just take it all down. I never have the exact same intro to any podcast. If we ever had followers who listen to every single episode, they wouldn't be able to be exactly in sync with me on any one thing in the intro. You got to keep them guessing. Exactly. Well, let's get your beer open right away. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Is it an old-timey beer? I'm guessing it's not old-timey. <laughs> yeah. I should have just bought some PBR or something. That, that would have be been fitting. the way to go. I think this is true of both of us, I've realized over the course of this. We are both consistent, if nothing else, about our beverage choices. You with your CNC, occasionally Crown Royal and Mix. Me with my sour fruit beers, and this is no different. My lime and coriander gosa sour. <laughs> My thing existed back in 1925, but your thing didn't. Not like that, anyway. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Did your thing exist in 1985? Probably not. Mm, okay. Although, <laughs> I would love to have gone into a 1925-era speakeasy and order a lime and coriander <laughs> sour beer, please. <laughs> See like, how we, quickly I get my ass handed to me. <laughs> we serve hard drinks in here for men who get drunk fast. And we don't need any characters around to give the joint atmosphere. Exactly. <laughs> Nicks. <laughs> it's not far from Christmas. But it's wonderful life will always be a good quote. Okay, well the beer's opened. My drink's already been poured, of course, so I will introduce this podcast, Leatherheads, or Old Timey Football. Old Timey. The guy who plays the coach, Wayne Duvall. He was in No Brother Where Art Thou with Stephen Root, who's in this as well, the reporter in this. He's the guy who they sing into his can yep. briefly. And then, of course, George Clooney's the star of No Brother Where Art Thou. But Wayne Duvall, I love that line. They ain't even old timey. <laughs> when the soggy bottom boys have been exposed. <laughs> old timey. So there you go. Old timey football was released by Universal on April 4th, 2008. Even when accounting for worldwide totals, Leatherheads was a financial failure. Which is a bit of a surprise because John Krasinski was pretty big in the office at this point. Mm -hmm. George Clooney was obviously a superstar by this point, And Renee Zellweger was a pretty big name too. And yet this movie, nobody really went to see it. They were aiming for an older audience. We certainly fit that bill now, though we weren't so much then in 2008. I think I saw this in the theater. Don't love it. Didn't hate it. It's certainly well made. And I've always liked Clooney. But what are your thoughts on Leatherheads, which I believe is your second viewing, right? You have seen this before. I can't remember if I saw it in the theater or rented on DVD shortly after. But I did see it when it came out, mostly because I was a big... More a Clooney guy than anything else at this point. Me too, yeah. This is right in his peak cool guy movie phase, right? I didn't know Krasinski, by the way. I'd never seen The Office back in 2008, oh, so I didn't even yeah. know who he was. I was a big fan of The Office, too, in its original run, but... 
Krasinski in the office never struck me as a guy that I really wanted to see in any kind of movie, especially early office. It didn't really lend itself to that. Of course, Krasinski's done a lot of stuff since, especially the Tom Clancy TV series. He's really adapted himself into more of like a leading man type of role. He was really good in his own movies, the Quiet Place films. Yes, he's definitely evolved. He wasn't a draw for me. Clooney definitely was. My impressions of watching it now were exactly what they were back then. It's very well made. Mm -hmm. Looks great. From a visual perspective, from an atmospheric perspective, just trying to set itself in the 20s, I like it. I'm a history guy. I really like seeing period movies, so that was kind of cool to watch. But to me, this movie is just muddled and bloated and confused, and that's basically how I felt about it when I saw it then, and it's how I feel about it now. Okay. My bigger issue, and we've talked about this so many times over the years, certainly fits this one. Not as badly as some of the great comedies of sports movie history, but it just wasn't funny. Absolutely wasn't, no. But it had moments where you're like, charmed. The one that stands out the most, actually, there's maybe two moments that stand out the most to me. The fight between Krasinski and mm -hmm. Clooney. The old timey like, put up your dukes thing. Yeah, yeah. That's, which is in Old Brother Art, though. Yeah. And it's very much in keeping with an Anchorman style brawl scene where it's, all right, let's do this. Okay, but don't hit my trick knee. All right, and don't hit my hand. Just keep it to the face. Just keep right, it. It's yeah. like a reverse Anchorman, anything with the face. That was kind of funny. I feel like it could have been better than it turned out to be, but it was still a cute moment. I was more enjoying that than laughing at it, and I think that may be an homage, actually, to Cheers. Could Cliff be. and Frazier were going to have a fight, and oh, they do the right. same thing. <laughs> Don't hit me here. You can't hit me here. You can't hit me. And they sit down, and they have one of those mixes to later on in the night, this long list of things, and then, <laughs> oh, I got writer's cramp. I'll let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> That's the end That's of it. You're probably right about that, actually. I remember that episode where you say that. The only other scene where I thought it was actually funny was the bar brawl. Where the, oh, the guy recognizes Clooney? Yeah. It starts out with this fight, and then he's having a chit-chat in the middle of it, and then it ends with the big sing-along. Everybody sing-along. Yeah, yeah, so again, not really uproariously funny, but I chuckle a little bit. I agree with you. It was more maybe charming than anything else. For me, anyway, what it comes down to is if it wasn't Clooney in this particular role, I might hate the movie. But yeah, the okay, okay. fact that he's so charismatic and charming, especially in this period in his career, he kind of buoys the movie up a lot. If you have the same scene and you replace Clooney with Harrison Ford, maybe, I don't know, as good as Ford is, he doesn't have that same yeah. charisma on screen. The joie de vie that Clooney probably always will have and still does even now as he's exactly. around 60, or I think he's around 50 at this point when this movie was made, or maybe not quite 50. Still look great. So his age actually is fairly accurate to what he's supposed to be his mid-40s age in the movie, and he's maybe later 40s. Well, that sort of leads me to the nutshell, a lot of these elements. So I'll do Leatherheads in a nutshell. Fraud fighter and football phenom finds fortune and fame while wooing wispy woman who would rather Roger charming cheater. Yeah, easy for you to say. <laughs> I got through that in one take. <laughs> well done. No edits. How many times did you practice that in the shower this morning? None. Oh, wow. I wrote that about well, three hours ago. Well done. I was trying to go for all Fs and couldn't figure it out, and then I thought the wow wooing part... Because, of course, that's Renee Zellweger. And then the charming cheater, meaning not cheating on her, but cheating as a football player, picking a poke and all these other things that they were doing. But I guess it wasn't really cheating if everyone's doing it until the commissioner says, no more of this nonsense. And then yeah. Clooney really cheats in the end of that big game against Chicago. I really wanted just a straight-up comedic, but just a straight-up movie about Clooney as a player turned coach turned GM turned whatever commissioner of new NFL, whatever the case may be, that character trying to adapt and transition from the Wild West era of pro football to the nascent NFL, right? Because we only got little hints and smatterings of that movie 
And then interspersed into it was this sort of half-assed rom-com thing. Screwball. Clooney's going for screwball in this. Maybe that's part of the problem, the tonal issues. Yeah, it's all over the map. Because he's going for some kind of thing. Have you ever heard of or seen His Girl Friday? Yes. Well, they might as well just call... What's her name again? Lexi... LL. I know it's LL. On my notes, I have Oh, Zellweger's character? Lexi Littleton. Yeah. She might as well be called Hildy Johnson from His Girl Friday. She's a reporter. She gets no respect from... Well, actually, no. I think it's supposed to have been years ago. She wasn't respected. But in that movie, they all look up to her, or at least respect her as an equal. But in this movie, Lexi has to face a little bit of the, hey, that chick. But then, by the end, Stephen Root's treating her like an equal. And the banter that Zellweger and Clooney have is going for that kind of film. I appreciate the effort, but I don't think it's achieving it. Because it isn't that funny. Okay, so I agree with you there. And what do you think of Zellweger in this role? Maybe what do you think of her career? For me, Zellweger was always somebody that, for the most part, I was like, yeah, she was pretty solid in that, but I was never, like, a huge fan. And I feel similarly about Krasinski, for the most part, too. I feel like Clooney has proven time and again that he can knock out of the park this kind of not-quite-Aaron-Sorkin-esque quick-wit dialogue. He could do that, too. He could do it, too. But this is obviously going for more old-timey, high-pants, fast-talking type Mm -hmm. of dialogue with a little bit of that witty edge to it. And he can pull it off like nobody else, almost. I didn't feel like she could. I felt like she was almost doing a parody of somebody doing that a lot of the time. It just meant that a lot of those scenes between the two of them fell pretty flat because Clooney was delivering the lines with gusto, and then she was trying to do the same Mm -hmm. thing, and it just felt... Almost satirical, I guess, to okay. me. Satirical in a way it wasn't intending to be, because I'm just realizing now, like you said earlier, this is supposed to be a comedy. But, but not was, a satire, though. It's not a satire. No. So it, it felt... An homage to these kinds of movies, which yeah. are not a satire. Okay, that's a good question. So is she miscast, I guess, in a way? Are you asking me that? Well, mm-hmm. maybe so. I don't know. I don't think that's quite fair. Jennifer Jason Lee did a similar character for the Coens in The Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah. And I think it's the same kind of homage that she was doing, and she may have been better cast for that. As far as Zellweger in general, she has huge peaks and valleys in her career. We love Jerry Maguire. We covered her in that movie. We will do Cinderella Man one day where she plays Jim Braddock's wife. In this film, I wouldn't say it's a valley, but it's not a peak like Jerry Maguire was. So who else do you cast in that role? I don't know. At one point, it's commented on that she's too old for Krasinski, but she's too young for Clooney, which is literally true because she's probably right in the middle of those two guys with their ages. You also said you think Clooney hit it out of the park with the Ratatat, Clark Gable or I guess you could say Cary Grant type of dialogue. And even though people have compared him to especially Cary Grant at his best, meaning Mm -hmm. Cary Grant's best, I see the attempt. It's closer to being awesome than Blaze of Glory was as the silly comedy was trying to be, which we covered two weeks ago. This is a better movie, but it maybe doesn't even achieve what it needs to as well as Blaze of Glory did or what it's trying to achieve as well as Blaze of Glory did. Maybe Zellweger's part of the problem. I hadn't really thought of that till now. But even though Clooney, I think, is good in this movie, at the same point, I don't think he comes really all that close to being as good as the people he's imitating, Grant, Gable, and those kinds of guys. So you say hit it out of the park, but I've seen those guys do that thing lots of times in my life, and I don't know that he was there. Well, when I say hit it out of the park, I'm framing that within the context of the material that he's being given to work with. and I Which he wrote, by the way. He rewrote this movie. He took a screenplay from a couple of... Well, one at least was a sports writer named... Rick Riley, the only script he's ever written, yeah, and a guy named that. Duncan Brantley, who's only written two scripts himself. Clooney apparently rewrote it, but didn't get a writing credit, and then he resigned, or pseudo-resigned, from the Writers Guild of America yeah. over it, because he didn't get a credit. And you can look at this and think, I can see how this has got his stamp all over it, because apparently Grant Hesloff, his co-producer, and the scold at the end of the movie, who's telling people not to swear on air, but then it pays off with him swearing on air, or yeah. sort of swearing at least, he said that Clooney got screwed on a writing credit. In the end, though, who really cares? Because the movie didn't succeed, and it's not like it's exactly. Clooney's best written movie. Clooney's written a lot of movies and written them well, 
but he was adapting an old script from these sports guys. And you can see how they wouldn't have written this movie if they were sports writers. Probably no way they would ever write a movie like this, but I can see how Clooney would. I'd love to know what the original script looked like and what the end product looked like. Nothing like this. Nothing like this, exactly. So when I say hit it out of the park, whether it's because of Clooney's influence on the original script or because of the original script itself, I don't feel like the material he has is very good, but I feel like his delivery and the charisma on screen is undeniable. He's not desperate like Will Ferrell was in Blades of Glory two weeks ago. When I see him in a role like this, opposite somebody like Zellweger, and it might be a little unfair to quite say she was miscast. I just feel like she didn't get to the same level as Clooney. And again, the material wasn't doing her any favors either. And we kind of touched on John Krasinski a little bit when we talked about The Office and how much of a jerk Jim can come across as, certainly, especially in latter seasons of that show. We talked about that two weeks ago, Just mean-spirited at times. We mentioned that. This character... There's a Pam being in that movie, and now Jim's in this one. Yeah. And I felt almost similarly about this movie, because John Krasinski's a guy that also has screen presence and has charisma, and when he wants to, he can come across vibrantly and joyful and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. He's a beautiful man, too. Yeah. And we get glimpses of that at times in this movie but for the most part his character's arc is very subdued and very dour for some reason and ultimately at the end of it i was like well why did we need that arc because you've got this movie that like you said off the top is meant to be a comedy Clooney, it appears, is largely going for screwball although i would argue again that the tone is wildly variable through the course of the movie right Within that context, you would think you would want the second or third lead of the movie to be playing that same kind of high-energy, charismatic, screwball-y role. And instead, he's sulking around and just constantly being battered down by Zellweger in the Chicago Tribune until ultimately he just has to walk out in shame almost. When we find out what really happened in the war where he's not really a war hero, he got lucky. Yeah. My original nutshell for this was, looks like Carter pulled a homer. So this movie to me is almost two movies that should be separate, right? The screwball George Clooney comedy that talks about this aging vet that's trying to adapt to a new rules-based NFL. A second movie that's this love triangle that's tangentially taking place amongst football players. That's the... And the media. Yeah, and the media. And then you might even have like a third movie in there that involves a quasi-war hero with a secret that's threatening to be ousted. And they mashed these three ideas together in a way that I don't think quite worked out. I wondered if it was because Clooney, or maybe the original scriptwriters, again, I don't know who's responsible for what elements of this movie, was trying to say, listen, we are putting sports, celebrities, athletes, whatever, on these heroic pedestals. Yes. And they really don't deserve to be. Because at the end of the movie, Clooney tells that fake story to Krasinski, and then he's like, yeah, you made that up, didn't you? Yeah, I did. But then he says, we all want heroes, or America needs heroes. We like our heroes, We like our heroes. That's the exact quote. Okay, so this is just like a commentary on how there's real-life heroes out there, and we're just, as a society, showering adulation on the wrong people because they really haven't achieved it. We just want them to be heroes. Is that what the movie's trying to tell me? Well, this is the time frame around the time Babe Ruth became an absolute legend with the Yankees. But as we learned as the years went on, well, they didn't know it then. I don't think the reporters were probably never telling us, telling them at the time. I don't know if he was a jerk, but he wasn't a good human being. So yeah. there's a good example. And we see Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig at the end because in a way it seems like it's saying that the CC guy, Jonathan Price's character, is going on to be the guys who fixed the World Series. Now, the time frame doesn't line up because that happened before this movie is set. But it's suggesting that he's going to be a... Well, I guess that's what it is. He's maybe Scott Boris 
an agent of these super players who's going to get them way more money than they even deserve, and that hurts the game because Scott Boris does that so often. Teams don't have to sign the contracts, but that's what the movie seems to be suggesting is that CC is Scott Boris before Scott Boris was even born. That's right. But yeah. you're right. They do merge a lot of things, and that's probably why the Rotten Tomatoes numbers are not very good. This movie has got a tonal issue, I guess. Only 52% of critics on Rotten Tomatoes say good, good. It was 5.8 out of 10 is the average, 170 reviews, but only 38% of audiences. And that's reflected in the box office because it was 95th at the 2008 U.S. box office. Semi-Pro, which we covered a few years ago, was 83rd. Not that much better. And The Wrestler, one of the best movies we've ever covered or will ever cover, was 105th. But Leatherheads was nominated for the ESPY for Best Sports Movie. No. I'm going to ask you which one, that award. I just mentioned it. The Wrestler? Wasn't even nominated for that award. Semi-Pro won Semi-Pro Best won the Sports SB? Movie. Yeah, for Best Sports Movie. And I like Semi-Pro, but that is a little nuts. I guess it's Slim Pickens that year. I guess they think The Wrestler's not a sports movie because it's a sports entertainment, but it should have been one of the nominees, and it wasn't. You're right. It depends on your interpretation of what wrestling is in the modern era. But I would also argue that this movie is less a sports movie and more a romantic comedy that just happens to involve two football players. Because True, it, but there's a lot of football in this. There is, but it's not meaningful to the plot. That was one of the things that ultimately, the more I thought about the movie, the more it irked me a little bit. If you've got a movie called Leatherheads, and it's about football, about the birth of the NFL, about these players, I wanted at least a game at the end of the movie that meant something, and it meant nothing. It was a personal showdown moment. That's why it meant something, just to them. Which is fine. If you're talking about a character-driven movie, a romantic comedy of some kind, that's cool, but... This is like a personal interpretation thing. This is Mm -hmm. what my expectation of the movie was, and I was disappointed by the fact I don't really feel like it lived up to it. I wanted it to be a movie about football, and it wasn't about football. It was about these relationships. I think they would be saying at the end with the commissioner being so stringent against Dodge Connolly, if we actually said Clooney's name is Dodge Connolly in this film, maybe that's the idea you're looking for there that didn't get put across as well as it should have, which is you guys have been messing around, and this is ironic too, the NFL is a laughing stock. That's hilarious because it's probably the most successful sports league in the world. Certainly in North America, it is. Yeah. It makes so much money. Not even the pandemic can slow down the NFL. It slowed down every other major sport, but not the NFL. We don't care. We're going to play on and have fans and everything. Oh, well. And I guess college football does too. But in this era, I guess it's based on reality. College football was huge, which it still is now. And the pros were a complete joke. So maybe what Clooney's saying with this, and this may have been the original writers that came up with this concept. I could see them doing more of a biographical, reality-based type of thing. Yeah. Where this is the last time that it was a silly game, the way that Clooney and his friends have been playing it. I think you're right about that. But it made me want a movie where we followed the Duluth Bulldogs for more than just a single game. Where we saw them play a few opponents and see all these tricks. Because over the course of the movie, we hear them reference all these trick plays. Picking a poke. Picking a poke and hiding the ball under your shirt. Which we never saw him actually do, did we? No, we didn't. Right. So I wanted to see all these things happen. Give me a few games of that. And then introduce these rules and show me Clooney trying to adapt to a new way of playing the game. That's the movie I wanted. And that wasn't really the movie I got. But you're right. It's absolutely what the movie is trying to say. It's also true that we do get a fair bit of football, including that last game, which was a long final sequence of a game, Mm. ultimately. And it was cool because it was a true mud bowl, right? It was well shot and entertaining to watch and some good sequences there. A game that has changed so much since almost 100 years ago. That's part of the problem is that we can't really know if it's accurate. It feels like it probably is. Football even now gets played in horrendous conditions. And all of them are so covered in mud, they all look the same. And that's, of course, the big payoff. He punches out the other team's player, (laughs) acts like he's on their side. 
And then you knew where it's going. I hadn't seen the movie in so long that I didn't remember this exactly, but I'm thinking when they say, oh, Chicago wins 3 nothing, because it's an interception in the end zone. Obviously, that's not where this is going, because they set it up that Dodge was going to catch it. If they hadn't shown the close-up of him running with the black guy, they never make race an issue, by the way, at all in 1925 in pro sports. We know from baseball, for example, in movies we've covered before, that would have been a big issue. But anyway, he's running with him, acting like he's trying to defend him. They're the two people that are where the ball is caught. Other people get there, too, but... If anyone caught it, it was one of them. Yeah. So they ruined the suspense there by showing including the close-up running alongside of him. It was a clever idea. And then when they hose him off to show, oh, he's actually with this other team. Maybe that's an homage to, I think it's The Good, The Mad, and The Ugly, where Eastwood and Eli Wallach are wearing what it would be, the South suits, the gray outfit. Yeah. And they come across guys just covered in dust. They whap themselves a few times to realize they're wearing <laughs> blue coats. And now you're screwed, Clint Eastwood and Eli Wallach. Maybe that's an homage to that. I don't know. And then the final score ends up being 6-3 to three because of the touchdown in the end zone. But then how would that be upheld? I guess you could argue that the referees didn't know what Clooney did by punching that guy out. Why would they know? They didn't count the players. The field's flooded with other people at this point. So only we know because we're a viewing audience, but no one else would have known that. I think you're right. The payoff was a little bit ruined. And the fact that they're playing in front of a packed house and Clooney clocks this guy and nobody reacts. No crowd reaction. None of the myriad reporters somehow notice it. No one on the Chicago sidelines notices it. Nobody notices anything. Eh, That's stretching credulity here. But okay, fair enough. I did wonder about the race thing too, by the way, because you mentioned there's the one African-American player. Maybe two, but one for sure. One for sure that's consistently there. There might have been another one that was just sort of like a bit player. That one guy gets a little dialogue even. I had to look that up because I was curious about that. Were they just making it a non-issue? But apparently in this era of football, there were... Not a lot, but there were African-American players. And then once the NFL became more of a cohesive league, it became very, okay, well, a racist league for a long time. And then much like Major League Baseball, back in the late 19th century, there were actually African-American players in Major League Baseball. And then they got sort of ousted from the game until obviously Jackie Robinson broke the barrier again. Mm. So it's funny how you can kind of start from a more advanced place, regress, and then rediscover. Because money gets involved. Because money gets involved. That's exactly right. We're not paying these How sad, eh? guys. If you know what I'm saying. Of course you know what I'm saying. Yeah. It is interesting, too, that it's the Duluth Bulldogs and the Chicago. They don't really have a nickname, I don't think. but It's that, the Bears. It might as well be the Vikings and the Bears, who've yeah. been rivals forever in the real NFL. But I also got thinking, as the movie's playing out, it takes place over several months, I guess. I don't think it's supposed to be more than a year. They say it's 1925. I think it's supposed to be only 1925. I think so. Is this a summer league? Now, 100 years ago, it could have been, but we think of football as a fall and winter sport. Oh, but there's be. no way they're playing in Duluth in December, and it's just mud. They would be frozen. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, actually, but you have to be right. Minnesota and Chicago get colder than we get here in Toronto yeah. in the winter, usually. I don't know whether it became more of a fall league once proper stadiums became a thing and warmer equipment was available, but could be. I know a little bit about the creation of the NFL, not a lot. And early on, there wasn't even a set schedule. And granted, this movie takes place before the NFL is truly a thing. They're just inventing the rules at this point. But still, in this early days, there wasn't a schedule. Apparently, every team was just told, you guys got to play a minimum of 12 games. So go figure it out amongst yourselves. (laughs) And so I guess, well, where are we playing? Oh, we're going to Milwaukee. Where was the one that folded? I can't remember who they were. Milwaukee going. folded as well, I think is what it was, right? Yeah, but so who, team who was the original team that they I don't recall. They might have been a smaller nothing town. Akron, maybe, or something? Could have been Akron. But then they end up going to Milwaukee, or supposed to, but then they fold too. And then Duluth folds. That was a moment that I did giggle a little bit. That was the moment where one of the teammates was like, oh, I can't go to Milwaukee. I got a wrestling match tonight. 
And this would have been true almost universally, except maybe for Major League Baseball players, but everyone had a side hustle. Even if you were a quote-unquote pro athlete in this era, you were making money elsewhere. Wrestling could pay pretty well back then, too. Well, that's what he said. Well, of course it does now, but a guy just doing it like that, remember making bad money. Well, that line in the movie, Clooney says, no, you can't. We got a game. He goes, well, it pays me 100 bucks or whatever. And Clooney says, I'll see you after the match. <laughs> you can't argue with it. 100 bucks in 1925 for one night's wrestling? That's not bad. That's well, there you go. There's a big question I have for you because I missed the point where this CC guy, Jonathan Price's character, yeah. and even to some extent Carter and Lexi, because Lexi's not really involved, but she's at the table and she never calls him on this. How did Dodge convince these people that they would make this money? He made it sound like he was going to pay Carter to play up yeah. front or something like that, but he had zero money. And then it worked out, and obviously it did, because they made so much money from attendance, but also from marketing. Everybody makes money. You see that one little scene where all the guys are wearing these great coats. I'm sure it's supposed to be hilarious. It's not really that funny, but I guess it's a payoff gag that everybody's getting bank out of this, including just the nothing, not nothing, but the lesser players. It's not just Carter and Dodge right? and CeCe making money. Everybody is. But I don't get the notion that Dodge gets this goofy old-timey motorbike even with a beard and down his luck, Clooney looked great, by the way. Yeah. But he gussies himself up and then he goes to convince Cece, who he knew from before, that I need Carter to play for me. He's got to turn pro, which is also funny, too. And turning pro, Rutherford laughs at that because, of course, now college football is still big. You don't make money doing college football, playing college football, but you, of course, make the money being a pro. hundred years ago, they laugh at that notion. But, OK, my question is, why would Cece, who's not a dummy, and even Carter, for that matter, believe that this is going to it does work? But why yeah. do they believe it when it's not like he's saying, I have $10,000 or $50,000 to give you right now? I wish I could answer that for you, but I had similar questions because he shows up to meet with CEC and Carter and convince them of this. And they initially laugh in his face and walk away. And he says, I have $20,000 that says, but where? for where? Maybe it was explained and I missed it too. But I didn't understand that. I didn't understand why he was so convinced it would work. I didn't really understand why it did work. I do appreciate that Carter is a national celebrity at this point, more so because he was a war hero turned football star than just being a college football star yes. alone. He was nationally recognized. He was endorsing products. So I get that. But I couldn't really buy this quote unquote professional league would go from basically being a laughing stock that would play in front of like five bumpkins in a backyard <laughs> somewhere to have packing, one ball. Yeah, having one ball to suddenly packing full stadiums. Practices. For practice. Just for practice. Just by the virtue of the fact that this one guy is signed on to play. That was a little much. The fact is, early stages professional football was popular. I'm not saying these athletes would have made a lot of money. I'm not saying it would have been a high-profile league, but people were going to see it. It was yeah. fine. It was like five teams or whatever. It was so popular that I know at one point, Teddy Roosevelt had to threaten to ban football because in one year, something like 20 people got killed. Look what they're wearing on their heads. Yeah, their leather heads, right? Mm. I don't think it needed that rags-to-riches element so much. I think you could have a league that was just getting by to the point where teams are make-and-break game-to-game, and then they start folding, but it's still popular enough, and it ramps up a little bit. I think that would have made a little bit more sense. I don't really know why they went the way they did. Why were the Duluth Bulldogs a good team? Because they were crushing their opponent in that first game, and then... They, they defaulted because the ball got stolen. Yeah, their coach pays the kid to steal the ball. We only get that one game, and then we get to the whole arc where Krasinski is recruited by Clooney. Krasinski immediately shows up with plays from Princeton. He starts revamping everything the Bulldogs are doing. But he's like, nice about it, but he does take over. He's a bit of a dick. Well, he's an aw shucks guy, but he's also a bit of a phony. Yeah. But why? Because from what we've seen, 
the Bulldogs were already pretty good. So when Clooney's like, yeah, we got our own plays, and Krasinski's like, ah, well, you know what? These are better. What's the proof? You just played college ball. These guys have been pros, and they've been winning from what we've seen. So, mm. again, if you're going to go rags to riches, go full bore, god-awful team that manages to recruit a superstar, almost like Mighty Duck style kind of stuff, and then go on a winning streak or don't have that. I don't know. So many confusing elements to this, man. I'm not sure Krasinski's character is really all that well presented or written as well, because if you think about his arc, the war hero stuff we know is BS. So he's drunk, and he doesn't go with the other guys on a charge, but then ends up behind German lines, has a line they don't memorize so they could all quit together, have their lives saved at least. Ich bin ein Berliner. (laughs) Not that line, but that would be funny if it was. It's moderately confusing. I don't think it's all that well shot. But anyway, maybe it's supposed to be an homage to what happens at the end of the movie where you've got somebody who's camouflaged with the other team then, too. Oh, I have thought about team. that. Just thought of it right now. Guaranteed that's a callback. Gotta be. Yeah, it has to But be. anyway, so Carter gets lucky, pulls a homer, and ends up becoming <laughs> a war hero. And we need our legend. So it's like that man who shot Liberty Balance thing, too. Yeah. When legend becomes fact, print the legend is the line in that movie. That's a great line in any movie. That should be one of the all-time great AFI quote lines. I don't think it's even on the AFI's top of our quotes. It really should be. And that applies to this movie, obviously. It's one thing for the bullet, Carter, to accept that and to benefit from it. And as Dodge says in the end of the movie, America needs its heroes. So you look at it from that standpoint, Carter didn't do anything all that wrong. Right. Fine. Look at the Michael Jordan thing. Bev and I were just talking about Michael Jordan yesterday because of the documentary that got released. I watched that when it came out. It's been quite a while now. What's that? Over a year ago, I guess. Or was the it two la- years the ago? The Last Dance? The Last Dance. That's what it's called. But I don't like him as much anymore because of that. I don't really? think I want to know. I think he's the greatest basketball player I've ever seen still, although Kobe is making a case. Not Kobe. Sorry. He's in there, too. LeBron. LeBron's making a case for yeah. that. But it's still Jordan for me. Jordan is just such an unnecessary dick. And it seems like, as you and I have talked about before, when we did Space Jam, probably, that he actually was suspended when he went to play baseball because of gambling. Yeah. That documentary backs that up with what we see in it. There's no proof, but it backs it up even more. Yeah. We need our legends of that Michael Jordan is a good guy. So if David Stern had kicked him out of the league... That's a problem. Well, the same kind of thing going on here. The commissioner doesn't want the story to get out. This brand new commissioner who's, what, in his first or second or third day on the job saying, we're going to fix this Carter story and Lexi, print a retraction and all that. And then, okay, that's not really an issue anymore. But yeah. Carter's going to donate a lot of money. $10,000 in 1925 is a lot of money. And Dodge, no more your BS. While the commissioner's fixing things, just like David Stern did with the Michael Jordan thing. That's interesting that you feel that way about Jordan. Maybe my impression of him all along was that he was a little bit of a dickish guy. and He's a bullying prick. He comes across much Maybe more... most athletes are. Maybe that's what we're really learning when we see this kind of stuff, is that way oh, more yeah. of them are just complete sexist, racist, homophobic dickheads. I don't know that they are. I know that's an inflammatory thing to say, but it just seems more and more like that in all the sports. This whole thing about, oh, grab him by the... Yeah. We haven't sworn. Grab him by the P word, as Trump said. We will never do that. I don't believe you for a second that you wouldn't say that and worse like the president did. I'm sure there's awful stuff said in locker rooms, 100%. I don't think the last dance implies in any way, shape, or form that Jordan was either a sexist or a racist or anything like that. He was definitely a bully and a jerk to people. A bad leader, too. And a bad leader. But I suspect that if you've got these kinds of athletes that have grown up and been raised to be the best of the best. They let them get away with it, though, They're too. driven to be the best. They're coddled and allowed to get away with it, absolutely. Carter is in this movie. Yep, Carter is in this movie. That's just the way they are. I've been listening to a lot of interviews with recently retired players or veteran players, especially some of J.J. Reddick's podcasts, which is surprisingly good. And it's surprising how many athletes will say, in retrospect, how they regret some of their behaviors and things like that. So 
it doesn't really color my impression of them as an athlete because I think a it's just endemic to the culture and b these are young guys too. Which I, I was just thinking it when you were setting this up. I was going to jump in and I will now. That is a big part of this. Same with soldiers. You're asking people to be extremely responsible and do and say all the right things when they're 18 or 20 years old. If that. they're a soldier, right, sometimes even younger, or even if they're 25, soldiers and athletes. Okay, right. And in yeah. fairness, that is one thing I shouldn't forget is that they're asked to do an awful lot and grow up awfully fast. And some of them just can't handle it. And we see evidence yeah. of that all the time. This is not me saying you have to like that or like the player. You're more than entitled to dislike them. I just think you have to understand it's part of the sport. I, if, if you're going to be a fan I do. of the sport. But to your actual question or commentary around Carter and we need our heroes and our legends, I agree. I struggled with this whole plot arc in the movie, obviously, but I also struggled with the rationale of this. I guess you would argue it's petty jealousy. Carter's ex-regiment mate, platoon mate, whatever the case may be. Max Casella, that guy. Yeah. yeah. I guess he's just jealous. Okay, so why is the Tribune so hell-bent on outing this guy? You're talking about a fairly recently post-World War I America where the nation, I'm not just talking about America here, I'm talking about any country that's going through something like World War I, you need your heroes, you need your unifying figures. And if that happens to be Carter, Krasinski's character in this case, then so be it. You can argue, yeah, he homered it, he didn't deserve it. Mm. But the movie itself says... I did it by accident, and we all agreed to keep our mouths shut because it was just easier that way, right? And then it got out of hand. So this isn't Krasinski trying to steal the limelight. It was just a group decision that took on a life of its own. So the fact that the movie then tried to so pillory and vilify Carter as a result of that, it felt disingenuous to me. It also felt odd that he would let it go this far knowing the way he has talked about feeling about it. And I appreciate, yeah, there's money at stake, but I also feel like if you stood up and said, I was there, I served in this unit, they all surrendered and I was standing in their bunker and it was an accident. Okay, cool. Your unit still captured 30 German soldiers. That's true too. You were still alone in the trench with those 30 soldiers because it was an accident. So what? It's war. Stuff happens. We need to have certain illusions about people. And I didn't feel at any point that Carter was the villain in that story. I felt like Cece was a villain. The Tribune was a villain. Zellweger felt like a villain to me, ultimately, at the end. Yeah, he was telling her in confidence that she stole the story. I think he he probably didn't say, this is off the record, but he might as well have said that. And then she wrote about it anyway. Even if that was on the record, if we are meant to believe that Zellweger is a journalist of capability and intelligence and integrity. And she learns this about Carter Rutherford, right? Because NC's character tells her the whole story, lays out exactly what happened and his feelings about it. And she's supposed to be as good and intelligent about things as she is. She should understand what these mythic legendary soldiers mean to the nation, especially post-war America, the recovering from this war. You're forgetting a key thing. Her publisher or editor, whatever it was, sent her to get this story to find dirt on him. Yeah. And she found dirt on him. Okay, what about him? He's the learned journalist. He's probably 50 years old. Why isn't he the one saying, okay, Lexi, you want to break this story? You're not going to because this is wrong. He wanted something like this to happen, so he's happy about it. That's why he published it. Oh, I agree. But to me, he was almost like J. Jonah Jameson, right? He's the guy that might know this is not really a nice thing to do for Carter or for the country, but if it gets the Tribune some reads, then that's what he Mm -hmm. wants. Whereas Lexi... 
actually yeah. knows this guy. She's gotten to know him. She's gotten to like him. We're supposed to like her. We're supposed to believe she has integrity. And so how many times in movies like this have we seen a character shown a carrot and said, go do this bad thing. And then at some point they find their moral compass and they say, no, I'm going to do what's right. And then we like them because of it. She never does that in this movie. She actually follows through on the crappy thing. And then at the end of it, I'm supposed to be happy that she had her happy drive off to the sunset moment with Clooney. I'm like, I don't really like you. You were kind of crappy to this guy. Very fair point. We talked earlier about Zellweger maybe not being the right casting for this. You certainly think that way anyway. How do you feel about the ending with the two of them riding off on a motorbike into the literal sunset? And then it shows in the very end that they got married. We see some other more cynical things with CC getting into as an agent, I guess, with Gehrig and Ruth. I don't think they had agents, those two guys, but we know what that means long-term in sports. But the first thing we see, I believe, is Zellweger and Clooney, Lexi and Dodge, getting married. So do you think that the two actors had that kind of chemistry where you believe that they would end up together? One of the homages in this movie, too, is the train compartment scene where he's already in her upper bunk. Again, it didn't laugh. I can see where Clooney's going for laughs there. Didn't really find that there were any. We find out that CeCe's a lech, too, by basically coming on to Lexi <laughs> yeah. the way he does. That was the best part of that whole sequence was, oh, by the way, I'm talking with this beautiful woman. You want to join us in my cabin? I don't know if it was a euphemism for saying you are the beautiful woman or if he meant let's have a threesome or what he meant exactly there. But I read it as a threesome. a threesome. Okay. Yeah. Well, fitting considering it's a love triangle with the two guys. Yeah. Her, in this case, it would be two women and CC. My favorite part about Jonathan Price's delivery there was he issues that line. Lexi immediately shoots CC down. And Jonathan Price doesn't even blink or hesitate. He just continues on. Good night, Lexia. <laughs> like, unfazed. Rejection means nothing to this man. He's just going to go out and try it with the next woman. He's instead. got a fallback, though, I yeah, guess. Yeah. If he has an actual woman there, then okay, was, fine. I, I love that. I love Jonathan Price generally, but that was a great deal. Well, he's played so many characters in his career, but it's funny to think that he's played a Bond villain, a Pope, and Don Quixote. <laughs> has anyone else? Well, it must be somebody who could say they've done that, but a Bond villain, a Pope. Don't forget the president slash... Was it Zartan or whatever in G.I. Joe right. Retribution, I He's believe? He's president. There you go. He played a president. <laughs> a key right. role in his career. Yes. Right. But anyway, I interrupted your question about the... Well, do you think that Zellweger and Clooney in this movie belong together? I, you don't, obviously. I don't think that, Yeah, I don't really, but it's not so much a chemistry thing between Zellweger and Clooney. As much as I've ragged on Zellweger's performance, again, I think most of my dislike for her performance is not her performance itself, but rather the screenplay that she's working with and what mm. she's being given. So I thought when they were together, the chemistry is fine, as much as her old-timey fast speak didn't really sell it to me. What I didn't like about them getting together at the end is it's just undeserved, almost. I didn't root for her to have the happy ending, nor did I ever really get the sense that either she or Clooney were looking for marriage and kids and all that. That's never portrayed. As far as we know, Clooney just wants to play football. He's not going to play pro anymore. He's not going to play pro anymore, but that's because of what happens in the last game. Going up to that last game where he knowingly gets himself ousted from the game, he just wants to play football, and Mm -hmm. that's basically it. She wants to be a good reporter, and that's basically it. And they have this on-again, off-again romance, but it's played almost as like one-night-stand attraction kind of stuff, like I want to get in your pants kind of stuff. It's never, I want to have a relationship with you and settle down, and that's really what I want. We never get any of that. Well, then again, that's an homage to these kinds of movies where they would get married after knowing each other what seemed like days. I guess that's true. And Bev and I have talked about it in some of our podcasts where we've covered those kinds of movies. Seemingly, they get married just so they can have sex. Well, at least in movies, you didn't say that people had premarital sex. You had to get married <laughs> to do it. 
Yeah. And they barely knew each other. I'll give you that. And as much as I'm often... Sir, they barely knew each other, meaning those other movies. This one, they know each other fairly well. Yeah, they know each other better than this, for sure. But I take your point. And oftentimes, when we talk about where I feel like things are unearned in a movie, and you'll tell me, well, maybe the director's trying to shorthand this, that, and the other thing, and I often don't buy it. This is a movie where I feel like Clooney is very purposefully homaging a lot of tropes or a lot of very specific scenes, and you've touched on a bunch of them already. So this is a circumstance where I would totally believe that he, as the director, was like, you know what? This is a movie of an era homaging a certain time and place. We're going to have them ride off into the sunset. I'll give him that now that you say okay. that. Fair enough. So Clooney is not really any other sports movies we can cover, except we'll probably one Isn't day. He really? Well, I looked. I don't see anything else, except you could argue the Oceans trilogy. There's some poker in those. <laughs> and the first one is easily the best of those three. That's a good movie. I saw it again maybe a year or two ago. I've always liked that movie. Loved it in the theater the first time. We didn't cover it last year. We did Casino Royale instead, another poker yeah. movie of a sort. I already mentioned Zellweger was in Jerry Maguire. Most of these people weren't in sports movies, or we haven't covered them yet, except Stephen Root was in Dodgeball. He was, yeah. Stephen Root's in everything. He man. does so much stuff. He was even in a recent episode. Well, it won't be recent by the time we post this, but recent as we record it. Boba Fett. Of Boba Fett. So he's <laughs> been in so many different types of things. And, of course, a lot of Cohen movies. And Clooney's done a lot of Cohen movies. And like I said, he, Root... And Duvall were all in, Wayne Duvall, the coach, were all in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which was about eight years before this. Was it that long ago? Wow. That was 2000, and this was 2008. So, eight, yeah. so Clooney's directed eight movies. The Tender Bar came out recently. Bev and I saw that, I think, the day it came out on Prime. We weren't fans. No, that's the athlete. It is not a good movie. Again, time and place. Clooney is really good with production design. He must hire great people. Behind the scenes in this movie, he's got Randy Newman, the guy who wrote The Natural Score. That is one of the great movie scores, certainly sports movie scores. Of all time. Yeah. Newton Thomas Siegel, or is it Thomas Newton Siegel? There's a Newton Thomas Siegel, cameraman, worked with Clooney, I believe, on Three Kings. Movie looks good, like I said. He shot it well. Sidney Pollock, great director, was an executive producer. So behind the scenes, all kinds of talented people. But the movie didn't really fully come together, despite all those talented people. Agreed. And I'm glad you mentioned Newman, just because the music does play a pretty significant role in setting the time and place feel for this movie. I think it does it pretty effectively, by and large. So I, I like that element of it, just as I like the fact that I got to imagine purposefully Clooney set an inordinate amount of this movie in speakeasies. The amount mm. of time that is either spent in a speakeasy, going to a speakeasy, or talking about going out drinking. This is prohibition times. Yeah, depths of prohibition. And that's, of course, fine. And there's a bust. Yeah, there's a bust. And that was the most jarring sequence to me of the entire movie. Just that... Zellweger and Clooney are running around and whoop, 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 and they close the door mm. and the cops and they knock themselves out and they go in and come out in the uniforms they look at each other I'm like am I watching a Three Stooges that is bit? Three Stooges yeah what the heck just happened here mm. <laughs> so jarring that's the screwball thing again it is he does screwball sometimes then not other times pick a lane and go with it mm. it might be a good movie but tonal issues aside the music and the cinematography and the settings I thought really did a good job and I loved the fact that he put a pin in the whole prohibition speakeasy thing by wrapping it up with the conversation at the I guess he's not really a commissioner. What is that DA that becomes the czar of professional football? No, they call him commissioner. He's mm -hmm. the commissioner. Okay. So when they're talking to him and he said, well, you look like hell. Where were you? I was up drinking all night. You know, that's illegal. Yeah, I know. And the waitress Yaya says, hello. This is one of those things where I give Clooney enough credit as a screenwriter, director, whatever, that he is poking fun at various elements of society, including the disingenuous nature of politics or politicians, whether that's the politicians in Washington or politicians from the perspective of the commissioner of various sports yeah. leagues. 
you will do what I'd say, not as I do. Of course. Right? And that's yeah. the whole crux of prohibition. We're all going to cluck and wag our fingers at you, and then we're going to go to the speakeasy on the corner and get drunk tonight. And a lot of people got drunk through prohibition, especially yeah. if you had money. I say as I swig my beer. <laughs> but it's legal now. Probably shouldn't be, but we enjoy it too much, and we're glad it is legal. So the depiction of the sport, well, it looks silly deliberately because football was like that back then. But it's also incredibly quaint to hear pro football referred to as a Mickey Mouse money losing thing because it's so <laughs> huge now. Yeah. So I guess it's accurate and fair and good enough. It maybe could have been even sillier, I guess, in some ways. Like I said right off the top, what I wanted out of this movie was a movie that focused more on the football itself, more on the football team, and yeah, just make it more of a zany, screwball-y type of comedy throughout. But for what the movie is, I had fun with the football okay. sequences. Like, Clooney maybe should have played it more like he played Old Brother. Yeah, I think Mugging, so. Mugging, which he doesn't really do in this movie. I think that's ex- exactly right. Okay. As for can you score, well, like I said earlier, you've got three beautiful people, especially the two guys. Not the Zellweger is bad looking, but the two guys are a dreamboat, both of them. But it's also a pretty chaste movie, so. It is quite chaste. It wouldn't be a bad date movie, actually, but obviously nobody thought of it that way in 2008 because nobody saw it. The sexiest thing we see in the whole movie, I think, is maybe when Zellweger and Clooney are going to the speakeasy before it gets busted. And they walk through the workout area, and there's like a half-naked, large man in one of those 1920s-era band machines that just shakes you for some reason. Mm. So he's just there jiggling away. Yeah, and there's <laughs> the, guy in, the guy in the pool. And the guy in the pool. That's yeah. about the most skin you see in the whole movie. I think the guy in the pool might be the dude who gets shot in Fargo in the car chase. J. Todd Anderson, I think, is the credit. And I'm pretty sure that's the guy who gets shot by Grimsrud, the Peter Stormara <laughs> character in Fargo. I love Peter Stormara. But then... Clooney would have known some of the Coen's people because he'd worked with the Coen's at least once at this point in No Brother and maybe more than once. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's the connection there. As far as the score goes, I'll be very generous because it was a very solid time of the movies. It would have been an eight if I'd laughed, but I didn't laugh, so I'll give it more like a six. When you said eight, I thought you were going to go seven or seven. No, if I laughed at this movie, I would absolutely be giving it a very glowing recommendation because there's a lot of things to like about it. Not so much the Krasinski arc. And maybe Krasinski, like I said two weeks ago with Jenna Fisher playing Pam, maybe they're not that great. Well, no, he is good, though. He's very good in the Quiet Place films. He is good. So he can act. I do wonder about her, actually, as a movie star, especially as a movie actress, even though she's adorable and likable and everything. But the Krasinski arc, then, the way it's written, not that good. Zellweger, okay at best, but we do like Clooney a lot. But yeah. anyway, your score. I'm splitting it right down the middle. Can you get a five? Five out of ten, yeah. Okay. I thought about giving it a five, but because it's a good-looking production and because Clooney is somebody I like an awful lot, I had to go a little higher there. There's things to recommend about this movie. The thing I struggle with movies like this, and I'm sure I've probably said this on other movies we've covered where I felt similarly, is whenever I can see what could have been or what I wish it had been, I'm like, oh, why didn't you just do X, Y, and Z? It was right there. I struggle to give it too much credit, but there is positive in this movie. So I don't think anything less than five would be fair. All right, well, we're doing this movie partly because the Super Bowl is on February 13th, and we released this podcast quite in advance of that, but going to get ahead of that with our two-week schedule, sometimes we have to be way in advance. Enjoy the Super Bowl, all you fans out there who like to watch football. We don't watch it because we don't really care. (laughs) We have a sports movie podcast. Well, you watch basketball, baseball, and hockey a lot. I do. I watch baseball sometimes, but it is ironic. I'm sure we said that in the very first podcast that I don't really even watch sports anymore, (laughs) but I used to, and that's how I still know about this stuff. And you might know more sports statistics than anybody I've ever met, at least historic sports statistics. For someone who doesn't even watch the game really anymore, it's true. I've kept up with baseball stats, but basketball and hockey and even football players, I'll hear the guy who's now the biggest star on some team and think, I don't even know who that is. That was never the way it was for me before. Who is this Tom Brady? (laughs) I do know him. (laughs) Never heard of this guy. Is he new? (laughs) Thomas Brady. (laughs) All right, in two weeks, the Olympics will be nearly over. 
but they will have a few days left of skating, luging, and skiing. So let's talk about Eddie the Eagle while we still can. Of course, he's a skier, and it will probably be the only time we ever talk about, at least so far, unless he does a sports movie in the future, Hugh Jackman. He is Taron Edgerton's coach, I believe, right, in that movie? He is, yeah. yeah. Follow us on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. The email address is ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. And you can get episodes, our other ones, 95 of them, I believe I said, so 96 now. Wherever you get podcasts, we are everywhere. So take her easy, Dodge. Go take care of your inevitable head trauma. Because <laughs> if you don't have head trauma with those kinds of helmets, and he does put his head down in the opening montage, he does. then no one does. But you do. I hope Lexi is okay with nursing you through your older years because she's going to have to. <laughs>